Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. I left my Bible to Via on the way here. So this is a children's Bible. <laughs> I think it needs to get worked in a little bit more. So we'll just have to bear, we'll just have to set it right there for now. My name is Jay, and if you don't know who I am yet or haven't met our family, we were celebrating our one-year anniversary in New York uh, just this past June. And certainly coming to Exilic was one of the surprising blessings that we experienced here that we did not inspect, expect or anticipate. We would know the church was here when we came. But when we gathered together as a family, and I'd been offered a position to be the executive director and a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in New York City, uh, we got together as a family, and I said, should I take this position? And we prayed about it, and then about 30 seconds later, or maybe three seconds later, everybody said yes. Which this is really exciting, um, moving to New York City. And it has been exciting. The thing that attracted us to New York, one of the things that attracted us to New York and still attracts us to New York is the great energy of the city. New York is just full of this energy, and we harness it in incredible ways. We harness it for work. Uh, we harness it for the arts and creativity. I feel it being harnessed here in the church, and we benefit from this energy in so many ways. But one of the things that we don't often consider is that we also need to harness some of this creative energy to develop the spiritual aspect of our personhood. We need to harness this creative energy because God has made us to be in particular relationship with him. One of the things I discovered that was somewhat surprising to me in preparation for this message is that there is a neuroscientist on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School named Dr. Andrew Newberg. He's a neuroscientist. He also has an, an appointment in the religious studies department as well. And what Dr. Newberg says with great authority and is received is that brain scans actually demonstrate that you are hardwired for religious experience. You've actually been made to commune with God. Not just you, of course, but everybody in New York, and not just everybody in New York, but everybody around the world. In 2004, the BBC released a study, a poll of 10,000 people from eight different nations about what they believed in God. And one of the more humorous and interesting aspects of this study was that 30% of avowed atheists across eight nations in a sample of 10,000 said that even they prayed occasionally. It's actually probably true that in the week to come, the majority, at least the majority, if not the vast majority of New Yorkers will pray in some fashion or another. And we need to give attention to this aspect of our personhood, and if we don't, we won't thrive as people. There'll be a certain restlessness in our souls. It'll affect those around us. It'll affect our own well-being. It'll affect our work. It'll affect our potential because God has made us to commune with him in this way. One of the great pastors and philosophers and teachers of the church is Augustine. He's an African who served the church in the fourth century. He wrote a spiritual biography which he called his Confessions. 
And he has a famous prayer, perhaps uh, one of the most famous prayers apart from the Lord's Prayer at the very beginning of his confessions. And he begins by saying, you move us to delight in thee. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, Augustine put his finger on this restlessness that we feel when we neglect this spiritual aspect of who we are as people. Now, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer so that we can channel this energy into communing with God. Because when Augustine says that we're restless until we rest in God, he's not speaking about the rest of inactivity. He's speaking about the rest of delight, of satisfaction, of a sense of fullness in the relationship that God gives us with him when we commune with him. And Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer to direct us in that type of communion. And the Lord's Prayer is remarkably short. It occurs in Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. It also occurs in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's remarkable for its brevity, but also its comprehensiveness. It is a prayer that can be said as a standalone prayer by yourself or with a gathering. It's also a prayer that can be used as a guide. It covers every area of the Christian life if you took it as a topical guide for prayer. And the brevity of the Lord's Prayer is itself instructive for us. One of the reasons that I believe we find it difficult to pray, especially in New York or any busy urban center like New York, is we tend to have this conception of prayer that if we're going to pray, we really need to pull out of our routine in a significant way. We see that Jesus fasted for 40 days, for example. We hear about people of prayer, and it's usually accompanied with stories of how they would pray for hours on end. We have prayer retreats, which can be very helpful. But what's interesting is that in Jesus' day, prayer, uh, the custom of prayer, was to pray at nine in the morning, at noon, and at three in the afternoon. Now, the Apostle Paul exhorts Christians to give thanks in all circumstances, to pray without ceasing, to rejoice continually. And in response to this exhortation to pray without ceasing, early and medieval Christians developed a monastic routine. They developed the hours of prayer. Literally, they called people to pray, the monks to pray all through the night at different hours. Well, this proved physically unsustainable. And so then, since one person couldn't do this job, they divided up the job of prayer. One person would take these hours, another set of the monastery would take these hours. But that's likely, quite possibly, and I think it is a misrepresentation of what Paul means when he says to pray without ceasing. Now, those times of prayer, that 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., they're not mandated that way in Scripture. But it does give us a good historical context to understand what Paul may have meant. Rejoicing giving thanks, these are things that are done easily and spontaneously. Perhaps when he said to pray without ceasing, he didn't only mean to just maintain a spirit of prayer, and probably certainly didn't mean to quit your job and just pray continually the way they did in the monasteries. Quite likely what he meant was to be faithful in daily prayer. And in his audience, the context of daily prayer for his audience would have been this 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m., and that seems much more approachable and attainable, doesn't it? 
You see, we don't need to eliminate our entire routine as New Yorkers in order to pray. We simply need to bring prayer in the midst of our routine. And the Lord's Prayer is short enough to do that. You can probably actually envision, no matter how busy your workplace is, pausing and saying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. It would just take you probably just a matter of seconds. And if you want to make a practical step toward prayer this week, you could try this. Write down the Lord's Prayer. Write down some of the shorter psalms, like Psalm 1, Psalm 16, Psalm 37, and many others. And take them with you, and just plan in your day, set an alarm to pause and offer these as prayers to God. Not all of them, but just one psalm or the Lord's Prayer. If you want to make a very practical step of bringing God into your routine and channeling some of that energy to nurture the spiritual aspect of who you are as a person made to commune with God. So Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer to direct us how we can pray. And this morning we're gonna consider especially this petition that uh, Jesus tells us to begin uh, with this manner of prayer of our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And Jesus wants us to know that it's very important how we conceive of God when we pray. And it's very powerful that he begins with this phrase, our Father in heaven. Because when we go to pray, it's often in the midst of a difficulty, or even if it's not in the midst of a difficulty, we can come to prayer with certain doubts about who God is beneath the surface. We may doubt whether or not God really loves us. We may doubt whether or not God really has a plan to help us. Or we may doubt whether or not God is powerful and able to help us. But Jesus addresses all these doubts that tend to linger beneath the service by saying, when you pray, remember, remember, you pray to a Father who loves you, who is in heaven. First of all, you pray to a Father who loves you. One of the most incredible things about the ministry of Jesus is he uses this word in Aramaic called Abba to address his Father. This word is so significant that even though the New Testament was originally written in Greek, those Greek authors who wrote in Greek carried the word over. They transliterated it to include it as distinctive vocabulary because it was so special. Abba is a warm, familial term. Maybe the closest thing that we have to it would be something like Papa. It was a term that children used to address their fathers. It would be also the term that adults would use to address their adult parents. But it's a family term. Jesus calls God his father, and the great privilege that we have because of what Jesus has done for us is Jesus enables us to call God our father as well. And above all, your father loves you. Your father loves you. See, Jesus is uniquely able to offer you this relationship to God as your father because your father in loving you sent the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have 
everlasting life. Jesus came at the initiative of the Father. He came willingly and joyfully, but the Father sent him. The scriptures speak about God the Father giving his son over for us. The end of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul speaks about this with very powerful language. He's speaking to Christians who are suffering. And he says, if he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is saying there? Your father loves you. He cares for you. And how does he want you to think about his love for you? He wants you to think of Jesus. I gave my son for you. No one loves you like that. When my son was born, and he is here, and he's given me permission to share this story, uh, which is very gracious of him, so buy him coffee or something. Um, When my son was born, he nearly died at birth. It was very traumatic. The doctors came and told us that he had a 50% chance of making it. I'd never experienced anything like that, and he was taken by C-section. So I was alone in the hospital room as they took Melody off to recover and they took him off to the NICU. And I just cried out to God on my knees, please, please, just let him live. Just let him live. I remember it like it was yesterday, not only because of the intensity of that moment and the pain, but as I was crying out to God, just let him live, it struck me like it had never struck me before. It was as if God spoke to me. See, you would never give your son for anyone. But I, I have given my son for you. And I love you. In the midst of that great pain of that moment, simultaneously I was flooded with the love of God. I knew that somehow it would be okay. See, God demonstrated his love to me already by giving Jesus, but I never really apprehended everything that that meant. And as Jesus unpacks this prayer for us, or rather as Matthew records in the context of his gospel, we see a couple of implications of this love. Notice in the verses that we read together. Verse seven, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, God loves you. When you go to pray, you don't need to worry about informing God as if he's not paying attention. You don't need to worry about persuading God with many words as if he's not already inclined to help you. The Gentiles were polytheists and they worked gods who were really sort of astral projections of human beings. Gods who needed to be persuaded, conjoled, convinced, informed to come to our aid. But that is not your God and your Father at all. He loves you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in addressing this particular question, that's a statement of faith for our church. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that this phrase, our Father in heaven, is there to teach us that when we pray, we should come to God like children to a father who is able and ready to help us. Don't ever delay in coming to your heavenly father. Never feel like you're too far away. 
Never feel like you're too far lost if you've wandered from him. He's able and ready to help you. The next thing that Jesus highlights in this little phrase is that this father who loves us, he is our father. He's our father. When the father brings us into fellowship with Jesus, when he reconciles us to himself, he also brings us into a whole new family, a family of brothers and sisters who also call him father. It's a worldwide family of believers that goes all the way back to the earliest days of the Christian church. It takes tangible expression here at Exilic. And what a beautiful thing it is, is we've had a few opportunities to have some of you into our home as a family, the immediate bond that we feel together as children of God, though we come from very different backgrounds. We know God as Father, we, in Jesus, we know him as our Father in a new family. And being in God's family, he gives us a distinct purpose and he has a distinct plan for us. His distinct purpose for you as his child is what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, four, that you would delight yourself in the Lord. And in so doing, you would see how he grants the desires of your heart. It's primarily a relational purpose. God wants you to find satisfaction in him more than anyone else. It is your purpose that you share with the entire family of God who also calls him Father. It's why we gather together one day a week to come together and worship him, that we could delight ourselves in the Lord. That's his purpose, but he also has a plan for us. His plan is that as you delight yourself in the Lord, he will be conforming you to the image and likeness of Jesus. Because in this family of God, we're brothers and sisters. But there's one brother who stands out above the rest of us, and that's Jesus. The scriptures say that Jesus actually is our elder brother in Hebrews 2, 11. He is the one the Father sent to bring the family back in the fold. He is the one who offered himself for us. And the Father's plan is that we would become more and more like Jesus in our heart and our mind. We all have different stories. We all have different gifts. We all have different personalities. And within that frame that our hearts and our love for God would become more and more like Jesus, who himself delighted, delighted in his Father more than anything in his ministry on the earth. This helps us with one particular struggle that we have in prayer. What do we do with prayers that are not being answered as we would like? The Lord's Prayer makes it clear that God wants us to come to him with all of our needs. God wants you to come to him praying that you would get into that graduate program. God, the Father, wants you to come praying that you would get that promotion. He wants you to flourish and he's given you his spirit to help guide you. And he certainly does want us to come and pray. He wants us to pray to be relieved of that illness or that particular affliction. But he responds to these prayers in two ways. Sometimes he grants exactly what he's put on your heart. Sometimes he doesn't. And instead of granting what he's put on your heart, he grants you himself. 
He's always powerful to grant whatever he wants, but his primary purpose is that you would delight in him. So if God isn't granting the particular thing that you're asking for, he is always offering yourself that you would be learning in that situation to delight in him, regardless of how hard the circumstance may be. And in the end, when we finish the journey, when we've died and we've been raised again, we will join Jesus, our elder brother, having been conformed to his likeness, and then we receive an inheritance, a physical, literal inheritance that Jesus will share with us. God did not spare my son from a difficult diagnosis. He was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And then, that was in 2002, and then 2014, he had to have a liver transplant. When his liver started to fail in 2012, the social worker at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia approached us and said, would you like to do Make-A-Wish? And she explained to Jacob what Make-A-Wish was, and of course he said, well, sure. Why don't you Make-A-Wish? Uh, Make-A-Wish is an organization that goes to children who are chronically ill or terminally ill and asked them, what is your wish? And so they came to our house and they said, you can do anything or have anything you want. What is your wish? Now, my son, being extraordinarily savvy for his age, said, what's the budget? (laughs) They said, there is no budget. But living in our family, he realized this cannot be true. This cannot be true. So what he reasoned was this. He liked to go to the beach. He thought about going to the Bahamas. They were going to take the whole family. We have six people in the family. That's expensive. That's money wasted on airfare. So we call them back. The representative comes back over, and he says, I found my wish. He says, what is it? He said, I want to go to the shore. She's like, the Jersey Shore? Yeah. I love the beach. I want to go to the Jersey Shore. Well, Jacob was right. There was a budget in the way that Make-A-Wish works, and I don't wish any of you would ever need Make-A-Wish, because it means you have a serious condition. (laughs) But there was a budget that they allocate for Make-A-Wish. And so when Jacob said, let's go to the shore, the whole family went to the shore. They found a large home that you didn't have to cross the street to get to the beach with an elevator in it. Everybody had their own bedroom. The people at Ocean City were delighted that somebody wanted to come to them for make, to do Make-A-Wish, and so the realtor who was sort of running this on the ground went to all the restaurants, the, the, the most popular restaurants, and they gave us gift certificates. So if you've been to Ocean City, New Jersey, there's a really popular pancake house that's on the Jersey Shore called Uncle Bill's Pancakes. So they gave us like $300 of gift certificates to Uncle Bill's Pancakes. Hey, more pancakes that week than ever. It's an incredible seafood place. A seafood place is come all-you-can-eat meal, have whatever you want on the menu. It's totally on us. The best water park and mini golf in Ocean City. They gave us gift certificates to all these places. In addition to that, they gave us $3,500. And actually didn't give it to us, they gave it to Jacob. And so we said, son, here's your $3,500. And as a 10-year-old, I'll never forget this, Jacob said, I'm gonna share it with everybody. Share it with everybody. And so he gave his sisters 
this $3,500. He kept them for himself, and he, he gave some to us as well. But as the brother, he had this little inheritance, and he shared it with the family. That's what you have waiting for you, except more than you could ever imagine. Jesus will be there waiting for you, and he will have an inheritance, and it will all be worth it in the end. He's our father. So you have a father who loves you. He wants you to come to you. You have a father who loves you and has placed you in his family, and Jesus, your elder brother, who has an inheritance waiting for you. And lastly, you have a father who is in heaven. And this phrase in heaven in scripture, when it is paired with God like this, refers to God's holiness and his power. Sometimes when we go to God in prayer, we're struggling with a particular situation that we think is, is insurmountable. Uh, oftentimes it can be a particular person in the office or maybe a family member. And it seems like this person is standing in the way of everything that we need to be or we would like to achieve. Or sometimes it could be a financial situation that's just out of reach. And we wonder if God is powerful to help us. Sometimes it can be an offense, or maybe in very serious situations, a very deep wound in a way that you've been sinned against, sometimes in tragic proportions. Well, when you say, our Father in heaven, Jesus wants you to be calling to mind that God is holy and all-powerful. He is all-powerful. There is no one keeping you from doing what God wants you to do. And if he's calling you to remain in a situation or a circumstance, it's not because he's powerless to change it. You can have confidence to know his power will be at work in it. And I think it's in this place as well that we need to remember that our Father is perfectly holy and just as well. Sometimes there are acts of evil that are just horrendous. There will be a day when our Father will vindicate all of those who have been righteous. He will put all wrongs to right. He will judge every evil. And that helps us with some other aspects of the Lord's Prayer, like forgive them, um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that our Father is in heaven. It's intent, it should comfort you to know that the God who loved you enough to send his Son for you is all-powerful over all things, and nothing can thwart his good plan for your life. Tim Keller says about prayer in his book, which I commend to you, that when it comes to prayer, we're either sailing, rowing, drifting, or sinking. And just a quick word for those of you today, especially who may feel like you're sinking. You feel far from God. It's been a long time since you've prayed or even thought that you could pray. Your heart feels hard and you are maybe even resentful. I wanna encourage you to turn back to your father. He is the one who's been seeking you. Reach out your hand and let him pull you up that you sink no more. And when you take hold of his hand, you will see that you are not sinking as you thought, that he already has hold of your waist, that God your Father was not far from you at all. He was right there beside you, only your heart 
had been far from him. Amen.